Thank you, Paul and Leslie, and good to see you all here today. Beautiful day in June. Thank you. There's one of us, right? <laughs> Let's go to the book of Ephesians, and your Bibles will fall right open to it, I'm sure. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll begin reading at verse 10 once again. And uh, probably a couple more weeks, and we will have gone through what is probably, I think, as important a passage of Scripture for today's world as any that we could think of. Putting on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning now at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." And may God add a special blessing to reading of His Word, and let's pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, thank You again for this day. Thank You for the opportunity we have to gather together to worship You. Thank You, Father, that You are worthy of our praise, that You are an awesome God, omnipotent, omniscient, and all the things that make You God. Father, these moments right now, we will be looking to You for encouragement, gaining an edge, if you will, on the world. We look at how you have described these important distinguishing pieces of armor. Paul felt it necessary to end the amazing epistle to the Ephesians. He talked about who we were in Christ. He talked about getting saved in chapter 2. He talked about walking worthy. He talked about thinking right so that we could live right. But there's nothing easy about it. It's important, Father, that we trust you and Put on the whole armor of God, just as we've sung, standing on the promises of God. Father, we'll ask, too, that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher today. We would be open and receptive to all that you want for us to receive. Father, we lift up your name, again, thanking for you for being able to be together. We pray for those that were not able to be here that had chosen to be, Father, but we would ask that you'd wrap your arms around them. Father, maybe someone here today that has a, a prayer request, something that is very near, very dear, and we would ask that that person you would touch right now. Father, now these moments are yours. We look with anticipation for what you will do to us and for us. And it's in Christ's name we will pray. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 6 is where Paul is ending what I would have to say probably... Excuse me? Oh, yeah. You, those of you that, um, was that last week or was the week before? Week before, so it's really going to be difficult. We had actually, uh, those of you that have challenges from memorizing things, we wanted to start it off with a rather, what should I say, a very difficult verse, one that we wanted you to think 
and to especially study hard. And so we set that one up as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. And you all went home and worked really hard to memorize that verse. And right now you are going to reiterate it and repeat it back to me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 says... That is so fantastic. That is so fantastic. That is, isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Now, 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 next week, I'm going to have you remember to memorize 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. This one will even be harder. We'll report back next week. Please don't look right now. At any rate... That was, thank you, Paul, for bringing that up. I was a, you guys all passed with flying colors. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, again, uh, an amazing letter that Paul had, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, gives even today us a great deal of encouragement, a great deal of insight to who we are in Christ. And literally, I would have to say those last number of verses, the ones we've read every single week for probably the last 10 or 12 weeks, in the sense of how important it is, after all of the things we have, that it's still not easy. We are in a war. And if you don't think we're in a war, let me say this clearly. You are in a war. And we have taken... Each piece of that armor, and we're to put on the whole armor. Don't just pick one. They are all to be put on. One of the things that I'm hoping that you saw is the fact that there were three pieces that we started with. That would be the belt of truth, the the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, That word that we saw in in verse 14 is having of chapter 6, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and the thought it continues, and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. All three of those, when you have them, do not take them off. They are essential for you at all moments of time. He has given them for you to stay in place. Now, when the heat of the battle rises up, and when you really need to rise the occasion, then the next three actually are depicted differently. It says, above all, or in addition to, would be a better clarification of it, taking the shield of faith, verse 16, and taking the helmet of salvation. And again, the thought is to take the sword of the Spirit. When the heat of the battle is, when you are at a heightened level of war, those three things are of ultimate importance to you. And we're going to talk again today about the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. We'd like to look at it, literally what it protects against. And and we had last week, we talked about in generalities, we talked about what it was and what it protects against. Uh, The helmet was really, if you think about it, uh, oh, and I think we mentioned this last week. Um, In hand-to-hand combat where you would have a shield of faith, and that's those incoming bombardments of temptation, those things that are trying to take you out. But with the helmet of salvation, it would certainly protect your thinker, if you will. And there was a sword called a broadsword that those would either be on horse or they would be outside and they would, it would be as a two-fister, if you will, because it was three to four feet long. And if you can imagine someone flailing that around, and you know where they usually aimed? Was that your head? 
They were trying to really create as much damage or to take you out immediately. And the thought process behind this spiritually is the fact that Satan is wielding a broadsword, and it's two-edged, and the two things we talk about, which I want to go into more depth today, because you know what? There are some of the most seasoned saints of the Scripture that were subject to these two things, and they're just as prevalent to us today, and that is discouragement and doubt. Those two things can whoop up on you. It'll take you out of your game, and he wants to take you out. With those two, those two things actually will neutralize a Christian more than anything else I can think of. As God wants you to go out and to be all that he wants you to be, you show me a discouraged Christian or one that is doubtful, and I will show you an ineffective Christian. Not a lost Christian. Be very, very careful there. It's not about the sense of, we talked about this too, the helmet of salvation is not go get saved. No, no, that's not step five. You don't put on the belt of truth. You don't put on the breastplate of righteousness. You don't put on your, the shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and you have your field of faith and then you get saved. No, heavens no, a thousand times no. There was three aspects, and this is, would be review again, there are three aspects to salvation. The past, that's the day that literally that hour, that moment that you trusted Christ as your personal Savior. You then gained a personal relationship with God Almighty. And at that moment, you were free from the penalty of sin. That's why literally in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there, Now therefore there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin has been taken away. But that's not where it ends. See, a salvation that would be just in the past is really no full salvation. It's not fully salvation. And then we moved into that, what we call the present salvation. That's the one we're struggling in today. And I say struggling because it is that way, isn't it? We're still in a sin-filled world. We still have those things of which the world is influencing us. But literally, when we're in Christ, when the Holy Spirit has... By the way, that's in Ephesians as well, that He is a down payment. Can you imagine a down payment, the Holy Spirit living within us, is indwelling us? Now we are really free from the power of sin. If you're struggling with sin today, it's not because God did not give you enough power. It's because of the fact we are not yielding to Him. We are not putting on the whole armor of God. And again, just that last song was really cool, Standing on the Promises. We don't need to be running after Satan. We're not told to bind Satan. There's only one place in the Bible it's told that Satan is bound. And you find that in Revelation, where the angel of the Lord came and bound Satan for a thousand years. You are not capable of binding Satan, but you are capable of standing firm, putting on the whole armor of God. That's what we're to do. And then uh, I lost my whole train of thought. Oh, yes, thank you very much. Brought me right back to it. Rome circled around in the old mind. And so we are free from the penalty of sin. We are literally free from the power of sin. And we are also in the future. And this is what we're talking about with the helmet of salvation, is the future aspect. A salvation without a future aspect, a fixation on the eternality, is not a full salvation. That's why Jesus Christ literally, in every place he said, it's eternal life. And I want you to know this. Eternal life means eternal. Can you imagine if you would have an... Let me say it again. Can you imagine living with eternal insecurity? (laughs) Right? That makes me cringe. How could you live effectively? That just... Right? That just... We are secure in Jesus Christ because he secured it eternally, once and for all. 
That literally is what we're talking about in the sense of, sal- of eternal salvation. I'm sorry. In the helmet of salvation is not the past, not the present, but the future of our salvation. That's what this is about. And this is literally when you are discouraged or doubtful. It's the promises that we stand on that Jesus Christ and the Word of God has said about our future that we can say, you know what? I have no reason to be discouraged. I have no reason to be doubtful. Because He has conquered all of these things in the present, in the past, and we have the future to look forward to. That's what this is about. But let's, if you don't mind, let's take a look at another verse. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's turn there for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. This actually gives us a picture of what we would call the future of our salvation. And I think we may have looked at it last week, review for some of you, but a verse that you should have quickly at hand, besides as you're studying for next week's memorization program, you can look right down further in that chapter and you'll find in verse 16 how difficult that one's going to be for you next week. But First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8 says this, But let us, who are of the day, be sober. That is to be vigilant putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, how do you protect? The hope of salvation. The hope. The hope, our forward, our future fulfillment of salvation. See, the future should give us strength to go on in the present. You know, the present sometimes can get you down. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of things, but but, but just just an encouragement to you, it's only the days that end in Y. That's the only ones. The rest of them, you're free to go. But those that end in Y are challenging many times, aren't they? And it's amazing how they can come through various ways. Discouragement hasn't got just one way. Doubt doesn't have just one way. It can come from multiple levels, multiple infringements. There's just little openings that can begin to just twist something. In fact, that's how Satan really got to Eve. See, there was no problem in Adam and Eve with the one tree. Remember that in the garden? And I'm using that because that's where Satan started, his his menagerie of skilled weapons of getting us to sin. And his first look was in the Garden of Eden. Did Adam and Eve, if you would ask, are you, are, you really, are you really challenged by the fact that you, know, you have all of this paradise, but there's one tree that God told you not to eat of? Does that really bother you? You know what? Prior to Satan showing up, their answer would have been no. We have no problem with that at all. God said not to do it. Not a problem. But when Satan came and said this, did God really withhold that tree from you? Can you believe that? You see what I'm saying? Now you're doubting his love. You're doubting his goodness. You're doubting who God really is. What has happened? And Eve right away is sucked into that. And you go to the next level and he threw this clincher. God didn't tell you as soon as you eat of that tree, you will know a lot of stuff. You will be like him. Really? You see what? He's pulling that rope. Doubt and discouragement are amazingly powerful weapons. And it's this two-edged, and I want you to get that, I want you to get that picture, just as in war. That double-edged sword of discouragement or doubt literally will take you out of your game. And you have to have the helmet of salvation on. The future promises that he has given to us.
Let's take a look at another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. He's, Paul is a, and, and Paul is that guy, you know, he just seems like he's an eternal optimist. He can be in jail and talk about joy. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? He writes the book, the Philippians, and he's in jail, and he's joyful. And he says, be joyful. What? <laughs> now watch. Now he's saying, it, of all things, when you cut through all of it, this is what's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. Now I'm, I'm kind of diving in. I know I'm cutting in the middle of a context, but watch carefully. Verse 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If after the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no future to his salvation, if there's no resurrection, then we are the most miserable of all people. That's really what it comes down to. Is there a resurrection from the dead? And... We'll go on in this later, but he spent some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 saying that Jesus Christ literally is the first fruits of resurrection because of what was accomplished. That same power, that, that's the thing I want you to remember, that the same power that raised Jesus out of the grave is the same power that lives within you. I'm going to say that one more time. I mean, you guys, it's just like unfazed. I, the same power that literally, you know, and how many of the disciples believe that Jesus Christ was going to rise out of the grave? They saw him crucified on the cross. Now, again, you, you need to be there with them. You step beside that cross watching that man, and I'm using that carefully. He was more than a man. He was the God-man. He was all God and all man. But they saw that on that day his arms spread, his feet nailed together on a cross, and he was dead when he said, it is finished. And you as a disciple that had followed him for three years say, it's over. We're doomed. We're done. In fact, if they're coming for him, we're next. Do you think there was a wanted list for those other, now at this point, 11? Where do you think you're at on that list, right? What happened to them? Can you imagine the discouragement? Can you imagine the doubt? In fact, we're, we're going to dive into another, I tell you, a stupendous individual that literally doubt was filling his life. But let's go back. And then to think, it's over. They put his body in a grave, in that sepulcher. Do you know how many of those thought that they would actually see that, that he would be gone? Zero! And yet on that Sunday morning, at dawn, I love those women that went out there, right? They're going to go finish the job at least. We want to go out and take care of the rest of what needed to get done because it was such a hurried thing with the Sabbath and all of that going on. And they go there and the rock has been rolled away and the angel said, he has risen. He's what in? Risen? Have you ever heard that before? No. That same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead that proves the fact we have a future is the same power that lives within you today. Today. That's powerful. That's powerful. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's take a look at verses 6. We'll start there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's look at verse 6. 
For God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that takes some power, has shined in our hearts. Do you see it? It's this, I don't know what that would have been like, but you have darkness, you have void, you have nothingness, and God says, let there be light. And there was light. That same God said, he shined in the hearts, our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, down to verse 11. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. In verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? That's our future salvation. When Satan says it's not worth it, it's too hard, you're not appreciated, just give up. Have you heard those things? No. Of course you have, haven't you? More, sometimes more than you'd like. Sometimes it's out there a lot. He's wanting you to doubt your salvation. He's wanting you literally to give up. He doesn't want you to go on. He doesn't want you to be faithful. He doesn't want you to be consistent. He doesn't want you to be committed. He wants you to, to give up. Well, let's take a look at, a, at an individual that really literally we would have to call a, a real hitter. He was something else. But I want to see, show you that discouragement can affect anyone. Let's go all the way back to the Old Testament and let's go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll find our participant of massive discouragement. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning verse 1. And Ahab, he was the king, told Jezebel, his queen wife, that would really be giving her a lot of, you know what I mean, all that Elijah, Elijah the prophet, had done. And withal, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. What's going on here? Well, we need to go back to chapter 18, and I'm going to let you read that on your own. That's a, that's a fantastic chapter. I mean, chapter, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it's like, it's like the climax of figuring out who's really in charge in Israel. For three years, there's been a drought. Right now, it feels like in the Ruby Valley, we've been in a drought for about five years. But we don't know what that is yet. Can you imagine no rain, no dew for three years consistently with nothing, nothing, nothing? Woo! Wow is right. And it was an opportunity for Elijah the prophet, who had been in hiding, essentially. He'd been gone. He'd been AO, uh, what's right, AWOL from that. And he shows up, and he says, to, 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 they, they gather together, and he says, who will you serve today? He says to the people of Israel. Now, again, let's just take a step back from that. Should Israel have a problem with that question? Well, wait, yeah, yeah. See, history is so cool, isn't it? You know, sometimes even for ourselves in your own lives, you can turn around and look and see, you know what? That was so neat how God brought me through that trial. Wasn't that cool? That was so amazing. And those are things that give you those little bumps of encouragement. I could name several of them for you. I'm not going to do that because in your own life, there were those episodes of where you chose to trust God. And looking back, you say, oh, that was, thank you, God. 
And that helps us go forward. The parting of the Red Sea, moving out of Egypt, man, that had to be in the history books, right? I mean, literally, they're, they're pressed against by the Egyptians, and all of a sudden, the sea opens up, they walk across dry land, and then you're still wondering, are they going to follow us through here? It's like, that's maybe too dry, too long, and somebody else, and whoosh, and the Egyptians are, they're gone, they're dead. That's got to be a champion speech, right, as you're saying that? But on this day, on this day, when Elijah asked the question, do you know what the people said? He says, who... Who is the God of Israel? Do you know what they said? They didn't say anything. Who do you choose today? Will you serve Baal or will you serve God? Jehovah God, the one that's brought you, the one that's chosen you, the one that you really are being blessed through Abram, all the promises that I gave to him. Who will you choose this day? And they answered him, nothing. Today, if you were going to ask the typical American... about the same answer if it wasn't even worse is that not right so now in this day god is going to do some amazing things in fact the prophets of baal elijah sets them up he says you know what today we're going to prove who really is the god we're going to find out who really god is how do you turn this bad boy on there okay and so he gathers up the baal the, the prophets of baal Baal was the opposing... Oh, who was the leader of the Baal worshippers, shall we say? Jezebel. That was her prophets. She was kind of from a neighboring nation and brought all of this stuff with her. That was what God was so concerned about all of the time, is the compromises that would come from outside his nation. Have you ever wrestled with... This, is, this message is not about compromise, but if you notice how compromise in your own life really leads you astray, and even in a thought process... It's amazing what compromise can do to us. But here we have Jezebel. Now, oh, by the way, Jezebel's on vacation. She went to go see something somewhere. We don't know where or what or how, but she's not there. So here comes this battle. And it's a battle. By the way, this is a war. This is a spiritual battle right here, right now in the late nation of Israel. They don't know who their God is. Just like today, America does not know who their God is. It seems, how do you go through the Constitution? How do you go through the Bill of Rights? How do you read what has been done in the Founding Fathers and we don't know who our God is in America? And we don't know today. The same war that literally took place on that day is going on in the hearts of men and women today in this world. And I'm going to say this because probably when truth was cast out, There weren't enough Christians that put on the whole armor of God. That's how we got here. But let's go back to our story in chapter 18. Uh, He says, I'll tell you what, we're going to start with you guys, you Baal guys, and why don't you build an altar? And we're going to ask that you have your God, Baal, come down and burn up the sacrifice. Oh, and they went about it, right? Took them all day long. He's taunting them. Um, Nothing happens. Surprise, surprise. And he tried, he said, well, maybe he's not around. You've got to yell louder. Maybe you should cut yourself. No, they, in fact, they came up with that themselves. They went more desperate, drastic measures. And then he said, well, maybe he's in the restroom. I don't know. You know, he's just not around. And it goes on and on. And finally he says, well, that's enough of that. Let's go ahead and get busy and let's build our altar. And then he went beyond. And he takes water. He dumps it on the sacrifice. 
He dumps water all around it, and then he prays to God. And you know what happened? God spoke. He spoke with mighty, mighty, mighty acts. He burned the rocks. <laughs> do you think God spoke on that day? It was amazing. It was, I, you know, what do you think the people, they're all gathered there. And they're, oh, boy. I wonder what we're doing here today. Who cares about God anyway? And the Baal guys, they fail, of course. And I tell you what. When that fire from heaven came down and smoked everything, I have a feeling they had their attention. He had their attention. And then what happened next was literally Elijah rounded up those 450 prophets of Baal and they were killed. Business was taken care of. That's what was just before chapter 19. And there's, it's a really cool chapter because you see God just rocking and reigning and ruling in all facets. And the people were taking that all in. In fact, I want you to see this. If you don't think those people got it right, let's see if I can find this real quick. Um, look at this. Let's start, if I can. Let's see. I should have... Here we go. Let's go, first of all, how the people answered prior to this little demonstration. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. Okay? And let's go back one more verse. It says, Ahab, verse 20, chapter 18. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And then, in verse 21, Elijah came unto all of the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Now, after that description of all that took place, turn with me down to verse 37. Elijah is letting God do the speaking. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, this is Elijah speaking to God, that this people may know that thou art your Lord God, and that thou hast turned their back again. I'm sorry, and thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt off burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust... And licked up the water that was in the trench. Watch verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. This must have been a day that was, you talk about a spiritual victory, a spiritual high, a spiritual climax. It was amazing. And then it even says that supernaturally, Elijah was able to outrun Ahab in a chariot. Now, I would say that Elijah at this time, I mean, I don't know for sure, he's probably approaching 80. <laughs> Whoa! Do you, do you, is this like Elijah man of the year kind of stuff going on? So what happened in chapter 19? Jezebel comes home, and she says, after Ahab is, comes home, and, oh, you will not believe this. Jezebel? Elijah killed all the prophets. And the people are following after God. It was amazing. And Jezebel does what? She puts a contract out in Elijah's life. And you, after reading chapter 18, would say, and the problem is? <laughs> but you know what? Elijah fell into a deep level of discouragement. 
Now, part of the reason is, I, I will say this, when you are on a spiritual victory, a spiritual high, if you will, that is a very, very vulnerable place for you to be. That's the time to continue to praise God, to worship Him, to ask that you continue to stay right in the middle of His will. Because at that level of spiritual high, Satan will come back at you in various ways. And in this case, this Jezebel puts out a contract on his life. Now, do you know how far it was from where he was to Beersheba? It says he ran. In fact, let's read that verse. Take your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. It says, when he saw that, in other words, he heard that uh, Jezebel said, I'm going to make you just like one of my prophets tomorrow at this time. He, and by the way, who was that by? So let the gods do to me. Which gods? Small g? Does that really matter? Not at all. It shouldn't. Verse 3. When he saw that, he arose, went for his life, and came to Beersheba. Do you know how far that is? How far did he run away? About 70 miles. Whew. 70 miles. Gone. What's going on here? Isn't this Elijah, the, like the, the great prophet? What happened to him? I'm here to say discouragement can hit anyone. Discouragement can hit anyone. And Satan was right there trying to get... Now, did you notice what happened? What, what happened now to Elijah's prayer life? What happened to Elijah's prophet life? What happened to, pro, to, to Elijah's sense of doing God's will right now? It all ceased. That's what discouragement does to you. It wraps you up in this cocoon or this tomb, if you will, and he takes off. But let's keep going. We filled in those blanks. Now let's look at verse 4, chapter 19. But he himself went a day's journey. He, he left his servant there at Beersheba. They went 70 miles. And then it says that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. What would you say about Elijah? Is this the same guy just the day before? How could this be? That is the danger of discouragement. That, do you think Satan was wielding that broadsword? You better believe it. You better believe it. He wants to die. I've had enough. In verse 5. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then another... An, I'm sorry. Then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into the strength of that meat for 40 days and 40. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what that angel food was. That's amazing. That's amazing. He gets fed by an angel two times, and he's, he doesn't need any chow for 40 days and 40 nights. Whoa, now that's divine food. That's angel food. Yeah, <laughs> That's where we got that angel food cake thing from, right? Now, it's interesting. This is interesting right now. Has God spoken to Elijah about his, his discouragement so far? There's a couple things that stick out to me that sometimes put us in a place of discouragement. One... I can't imagine the emotional drain that Elijah would have had as a result of the spiritual warfare that's going on the day before. And I say spiritual because, yes, there was a physical war, but can you imagine the intensity of good versus evil in that place on that day? Because really the heart of the nation is at risk. At the morning when Abraham, when Elijah asked 
Who will you serve? They didn't know. By the end of that day, through the power of God, they said, it is the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Think of that unbelievable victory that came and the emotional drain that would have come. We know that he was zapped physically. So what does God do? He wants to make sure that he's nourished properly. What did he tell him to do? To eat. To be refreshed. Now he goes 40 days. I mean, where is this guy at now? Well, let's keep reading. We'll find out. He rose, did eat and drink. He went into the strength of that meat for 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, uh, there, are two, there are two names for this place. Mount Horeb, which is given here, and then Mount Sinai would be the same place. And it took him in his wanderings 40 days to get here. Can you imagine how far away he is now from Jezebel? It's a long ways. It's a long ways. By the way, I'm wondering what she's thinking right now. Remember what she said? Her threat? If you are not like those prophets tomorrow, then may the gods do unto me. But what is that saying? He was certainly not dead. She certainly had no power. Do you see what I'm saying? A lot of the things that we get discouraged about have little to do with reality in the sense of where we are positionally with Christ. It has nothing to do with it, but it still has taken him down. Where do you think he is right now? Where is Elijah spiritually right now? Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Do you think 40 days and running 70 miles have helped him spiritually? Well, look at it. Verse 9. He came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What, what doest thou here, Elijah? Now that, that is the coolest thing I can think of. Now, he, he's just ran off in the wilderness. He's in a cave on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. This is the place, literally, that Moses would have gotten those Ten Commandments. This is that place. And Elijah would have known of that. And he's hiding in a cave from a woman that has no power. And God says this, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> Isn't that good? There's sometimes in, the, in my own spirit, sometimes, you know, and you're, and you're just at a low point. You're discouraged. And you know what? I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's out loud, but inside my spirit it's, what are you doing here? Isn't that true? That's absolutely... What, what are you doing here? Why are you discouraged? And, and now watch, watch, watch Elijah. Watch where his eyes are, because this is usually at the base point of discouragement. Let's keep reading. And he said, Elijah says, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, slain thy prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Cry a river, right? I'm the last one. I'm the last of the whatevers, right? There's no one left. It's only me, God. It's me, and I want to get out of here. I want to go home. I'm tired of it. I'm totally discouraged. Verse 11, and he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent or broke the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. I, I, I just, I, I think of that. Now, those were three very significant things. Okay, have you been in a windstorm to where literally the mountain was breaking apart? Or in an earthquake that would have been earth-shattering? And then... That would be a display of all, but you know what? God wasn't in any of that. And then it says in a still small voice, 
Does Elijah know who he's talking to? I think that was the significance. In a still small voice, verse 13, And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, (laughs) What are you doing here? (laughs) Larry, what are you doing here? Paul, what are you doing here? Alice, what are you... Oh, I'm not going to die. Oh, don't do it to me. But isn't it amazing how many times God really has to ask, why are you here? What are you focusing on? What is my will for your life? Do you think this is where God wants Elijah right now? No. No, in fact, he's going to wake him up to a whole new mission, but let's keep going. Now watch, if you didn't get it the first time, Elijah says, what, are you hard of hearing or what? Verse 14, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy commands, thrown down thy altars, slain thy prophets. With What do you think Elijah has been doing for those 40-some days and running for 70 miles beyond that? He's thinking a whole lot about him. He's thinking a whole lot about how bad he's got it. He's thinking about all the things that are going wrong in his life. Verse 15. And the Lord said unto him after the second time of that, he said, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Oh, and by the way, verse 18, Yet I, God, have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So there are 7,001, technically, Elijah. Did you see what God did? He sent him right back with a new mission, with a new heart for his will. And it was based on what? His future. Just as you, when you are wrapped up with discouragement, God wants you to be reminded of what your future is in Jesus Christ. When you're at that level and God asks you in your spirit, what are you doing here? That's when you need to think about what he's done for you for eternity. Now here's Elijah, probably the greatest prophet in in Israel's history. And he is subject to discouragement. I'm here to say every single one of us in this room has been discouraged and probably will be further discouraged. But you know how you break it? The very thing that Paul has asked us to do, put on the helmet of salvation, that is your future hope based upon what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We of all people, literally, when I'm talking about Elijah, he didn't know who Jesus Christ was. He'd never seen him walk at the earth. He had never seen him crucified. He had never seen him being risen from the dead. But he was standing on the promise that that Redeemer was coming. And he believed it. When life isn't easy, we make it simple by trusting God. And that's what God did with Elijah. He reminded him, no, it's not been easy. And yes, it's been difficult. But it's simple when you trust me. And by the way, I want you to go get a new friend, and his name is Elisha. And he became a mentor. In fact, I think Elisha's, I'm going to say his career, was much heightened by the fact of who his mentor was, and that was Elijah. He brought him into a sense of usefulness. 
That's why a lot of times when we're in discouragement, you know what happens? If we, God will give us someone to reach out to, to share our lives with, that literally strengthens them and gives us a new level of encouragement. That's how God works. That's how God works. Let's look at another guy that fell into a sense. Oh, there's one more. I'll try to share it real quickly. Because there's a lot of things that come together. There's a man by the name of Nehemiah. You guys know who he was? Probably one of the greatest leaders we have in the Old Testament. It was really amazing. He was serving as the cupbearer of a king, and then God spoke to him through someone else coming in, and the whole land of Israel was completely downtrodden. And God gave him a mission. I can't get into it too far. We want to kind of scratch into right where he's at. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's find this quickly. Nehemiah chapter 4. And if you found Esther, that's close. Just turn back. Nehemiah chapter 4. That would be about page 756 for most of you. And let's look at verse 10. Verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, as, as you're turning here and you're finding it, what's taken place is the wall. They are there to rebuild the wall. And it's just a mess. It's a total mess. Have you, have you went on a project somewhere and you're saying, oh, oh. You know, they talk about how to eat an elephant. Well, one bite at a time. They spoke of a little, of, of a little girl of which a, a, a coal truck, and the, you know, the old black coal, and this truck comes by, and it dumps a load of coal right in this front yard. And the little girl, they had a coal-burning furnace. So she's got this little shovel, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's little. And there she goes. She's five years old. And she goes out to this, to this pile, and she picks up a, and she goes and walks across the sidewalk and goes into the cellar downstairs. And the neighbor's watching this. And the third time, he comes over to the little girl, and he says, Honey, you, 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 you can't finish that job. And you know what her response was? It depends how long I stay at it. Isn't that good? That little five-year-old was not in any way incapacitated by the fact that it's this mountain of cold, she's just going to keep doing what she needs to do. That's how we need to live Christian life. Don't ever give up. By the way, there is a finish line. What if God had asked you to continue to run a race and there was no finish line? I would be depressed. But there is a finish line. There is an end point. There is a point at which our salvation becomes a future to us now, a reality, because Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. I'm so glad he said that. What if he just said, uh, I don't know, just keep going. <laughs> that would wear me out, right? There is a finish line. There is an end. We'll be talking about it in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 as we wrap up. But Nehemiah, back to him. He had been probably on the job now for about a month. Have you ever been in the middle of a project? What happens in the middle of a project? Oh, it's so tiring. It's so over. We're not getting this done. We're not going to get this done. How many of you this week were in the middle of a project? Yeah, all the hands are going up, right? And it's a good opportunity to be discouraged. There are four things that can set in, and let's find them. We'll find them in just a few verses. Now, again, I'm diving in. Read the book of Nehemiah this week for yourself. You will see a leader in Nehemiah that is amazing. Nehemiah chapter 4, we're just going to dive in to verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 4. 
Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. We're tired. This is one of the tribes, one of the families. And see, they were going all around this wall. Now, does anyone know? This is a little trivia question. Um, from the, how many days did it take to finish the wall around Jerusalem? 52 days. Good job. 52 days. They've probably been at it between, we're going to guess, between 25 and 30 days thus far. Right in the middle. The worst time of any project for anyone because you've been at it long enough. And it's not done yet. That's why we have, ladies, do you have those crafts, those projects? And they're all over the place and they're half done. You got a lot of half doneers? <laughs> I got a lot of stuff in my shop that's not even a quarter done, right? And it's these, we, call, we call them wintertime projects. Boy, there's not enough winter. <laughs> well, here we are, and here, this is what he's saying. Judah, one of those families, says, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. We are fatigued. We are tired. You know what? That's a common theme. When you're wore out, that's a great time for Satan to come and to wield that broadsword of discouragement. Because when you're tired... That's a great place for him to make advances. Or we talk of a beachhead. You've let him have a place to do battle. Fatigue. There's four F's here, actually. We find the next one as we continue in verse 4. And there is much rubbish. (laughs) There's a whole lot of junk everywhere. There's junk and there's stuff and there's more stuff. And I'm frustrated by stuff. So what do you think the second F is? is Not stuff, it's... Not rubbish. Frubbish. No, it's not frubbish. It's frustration. Frustration. You know, sometimes you just see stuff and it's, it's so frustrating. There's no end to it. It's never going to get done. And when you're tired and you're frustrated, oh my goodness, kick the ball away, right? We're done. We're doomed. But there's two more left. You say, do we need two more? Well, just in case you do, let's keep going. Same verse. So that we are not able to build a wall. We cannot do this. I can't begin to to tell you how many times in my lifetime I've probably told my wife, I can't do this anymore. I give up. But I never give up. That's what she says. You just never quit. Even though I feel like it. Even though I want to. What is it that keeps us going? So we've got, what was the first F? Fatigue. You're wore out. That's real, by the way. That's a dangerous place to be. Number two is frustration. Everything you see is frustrating to you. You've been there? Like equipment breaks down. And it just keeps breaking down. And then everything looks like it's broke down. And then you tie that to the next level. We are not going to be able to do this. We are failing. We have, let's do them again, fatigue, frustration, and failure. And you say, there's more? (laughs) That seems adequate. Well, let's keep going. We're going to turn down to verse 11 now. It came to pass, whoops, I'm sorry, and our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. It came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. You know what's happening now? You've got fatigue and you're thinking you're going to fail. And you know what you put on top of that when you see that stuff? Is you have an adversary. You have someone out there and you're fearful. Fearful. I'm going to write these down. I don't want you to forget these because these are key elements to literally discouragement entering your life. Fatigue. 
What's the next one? There we go. Thanks for reminding me. And failure. And fear. Now, oftentimes, and these, by the way, they don't have to go boom, 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 but they can inter- interrelate. But I'll tell you what, they have the same common denominator. Did you notice that all four of those potentially were in Elijah's thing as well? He was certainly fatigued. I can't imagine his spiritual emotional state on that morning that Jezebel says, you know, it's like, oh, God, give me a break. Just give me a day off from these people, right? And there she is. Boom. When you're tired is the most vulnerable time for Satan to literally plow into you. Frustration? He's... Well, it never stop. You know what? Spiritual warfare won't stop. But it's not our frustration. It's God's battle. He felt like a failure. What, I got another one chasing me? And then you know what happens? Fear is inevitable. He's running out of fear. And you know what? You cannot have fear and faith in the same place. What, what was Elijah out of? What was his tank empty of? Faith. His tank was full of fear. These four things literally in this same place, Nehemiah's, team is struggling with. And you know what he did? He cried out to God. That's what he did. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to get back to those promises. We need to get back in the word. We need to say, Lord God, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. All I can see is I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm failing, and I'm fearful right now. What can... And you know what? The Psalms are so good for me. I read them the other morning. I was, I just, ooh, I was cruising through the Psalms. I was like, whoa, that was so refreshing. You know why? Because we're standing on promises. We're seeing how big God is. And you know what? The bigger God is, the less these things become. When they started to see this wasn't my wall, this isn't my problem, those aren't my enemies, this is God's victory. That's why David saw Goliath as just a puny runt. It was God's stuff. Now, that doesn't negate us from being involved. It's not let go, let God. We both, God and us, come together obeying his will. It's so important that we continue to go forward. Those are two guys, two spiritual giants, literally, that were suffering under discouragement. How about doubt? How about doubt? I want to go quickly look at one guy that Jesus said there was no greater man than this one. No greater prophet. Do you know who I'm talking about? Whoa, that's a big statement. Jesus Christ said that about somebody? Yeah, he did. He said, born of woman, there's no greater prophet in Israel. John the Baptist. He said that of him, but I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that literally John the Baptist had given up on Jesus. This is the same man, John the Baptist, when Jesus Christ came to be baptized, and he saw him from a distance, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He saw Jesus exactly for who he was. He was that forerunner. And now, literally, I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture. Let's go to Matthew. I'm not sure if I'm going to go to Matthew or Luke. Let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And let's take a look at verse 18. Now, Jesus was involved in his ministry. He had gotten going. There was things going on. Now, what do you know about John the Baptist? What happened to John the Baptist after Jesus came on the scene? Now, John's sole purpose was to make, kind of like lay out the carpet so that Jesus could get going. He was the forerunner, as he's described. And I love what John the Baptist said. This is, if, you're, if you have a mission or I want something on my tombstone, it would be this, if it was true. I must decrease, and he, Jesus, must 
increase. There is nothing more significant in a man's life or a woman's life to literally live a life that Jesus has increased and we are decreased. That's what John the Baptist literally, his life was all about. So what happened to John? He got arrested. He got arrested. Let's turn to, where, where did I tell you to go? Luke? Luke chapter 7 and let's go to verse 18. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it different. I'm going to do it different. Just hold on. Don't, don't do anything. Uh, just think about good things for just a second while Larry figures out where we should go. Um, boy, I don't know where I want to go. Let's go to, I'm going to change. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. It's the same, it's the same passage, but it tells us a couple of things that you need to know. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We'll start in verse 2. Matthew eleven two. Now when John the Baptist had heard in the prison, that's a great place to really get all of your needs met. That's a great place to get pumped up in Jesus. <laughs> now somehow Paul seemed to manage to do that because you know what he was concerned about? Others. He always saw an opportunity for Jesus to be shared with those around him. Prison was just another place. In fact, the ones who were at a disadvantage were his guards. Those that got chained to him so that he wouldn't get away. Get away? That was for them to be hearing about Jesus. That's amazing. But let's keep... So he's in prison, verse 2. He sent... Oh, I'm sorry. When, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ. Now, that word is Christ. Christos, Messiah. This is the book of Matthew, which would have been given... That's a picture of who Jesus really was. He said... Or he sent two of his disciples. Sent them to Jesus. He said unto him, Art thou he that should come... Or do we look for another one? What? What did he say? This is John the Baptist, the one that saw Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's in prison, and he says, You know what, guys? I don't know what's going on. You need to go to this Jesus guy and say, Are you the real McCoy, the real Messiah, or should we look for somebody else? <gasps> John the Baptist, full of doubt? What is going on? Remember our broadsword. Why do we have the helmet of salvation? Why do we have our future? Because Satan is wielding that with doubt and discouragement. When you're filled with doubt, guess what? Not only ineffective, it steals joy. It steals peace. It steals everything that God wants you to have. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. Against such there is no love. I'm sorry, against such there is no law. Think of that. That's what he doesn't want you bearing. And when John was doubtful, those things are absent from his life. But watch how Jesus responds. Now, he doesn't scold him. That's what's really cool. Did you see what God did with Elijah? He encouraged him. He made sure that he got over his fatigue. He sent an angel to feed him and truly got angels food. He nourished him and then he asked him the question. Nehemiah, literally in that situation, again, no scolding, just brought them the necessary issues, cry out to me. You know what he told John? Watch what he tells John. He's standing on the promises. 
Let's keep going. Jesus answered and said unto them, these two disciples, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. You know what he's quoting? He's literally quoting the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 28. He says, you tell John that what he's seeing in my ministry now was predicted back in Isaiah. And it's the real deal because you can stand on the promises of God. And I'm convinced that John said, that's good enough for me. And see, that's how we get regained past doubt and discouragement as we stand on those promises. We look to our future salvation, which are the consummation of it all. When Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, I go to prepare a place for you. Those are all incredible encouragements to us written for our good. Wow. Amazing stuff. Let's take a look at John chapter 6. I don't know where... Oh, we're in Matthew. Let's go to John chapter 6. We're going to start shutting her down here. John chapter 6... This, is, this seems really good for me right now. I, I read it in a little different light today. We always talk about wanting to do God's will. Have you, do you pray that? Lord God, I want to do your will. Lord God, show me your will. And sometimes you're a little bit afraid to know what his will is. I want to know your will, but I really don't want to be a missionary to Africa. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, I really want to know your will, but I really don't want to be a car salesman in Butte. Hopefully there's no car salesman in view right here right now. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But you know, our personal preference sometimes takes us out of where God really wants us. Now, He will give you the desires of your heart when your heart is in tune with His will. That's what prayer does. That's what prayer is so cool about prayer. The more we pray, the more we get in tune with Him. We're on the same frequency. You start to hear Him. Remember those old radios? And you turn them on, and if you're on the wrong station, it and you keep moving the dial and all hey, here comes a station. That's what happens when we're praying to God. Our will gets tuned in to His will. And things start to really get cool. But watch this. John chapter 6, and let's start in verse 37. Uh, we should, let's, let's go to verse 35. But this is amazing stuff. And you talk about the sense of... We're securing Jesus. This is a passage of Scripture you need to have firmly gripped in your memory. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise, in no way cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's the Father's will. Now watch verse 39. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. Oh, I want to pay attention to this. That of all which he hath given me. Who's that? All of those that are in Christ. All of those that he's gathered. All of those that are his, of which he's the shepherd. I should lose nothing. God's will is that not one person in Christ will ever be lost. That's his will. Now, how many people 
How many anybody's, anywhere, any powers, any principalities can break God's will ultimately? That's a zero-ness. If you doubt that, read Romans chapter 8, start at verse 37, get to the end. And you know what? There's nothing, 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 nothing more powerful than God. That's his will that none would be lost. Plus, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That verse right there should give you so much incredible encouragement, I can't begin to tell you that God's will literally is to surround you with his power that you couldn't possibly be taken, lost, in any way, shape, or form if you're in Christ. And that's God's will. That's encouraging. That is powerful. That is, and you know what Satan's going to try to do? He's going to try to take these things, fatigue, frustration, failure, and fear, to draw you away from all of the things that we know to be true, particularly in discouragement and in doubt. Wow. Let's close. I'm not sure that I've got a couple of passages. I'd like to read them both. I'm not sure in what order, but let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just seems to be that's where we'll start. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at the last two verses. One of those was my father's favorite verse. Verse 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 57. If you're discouraged today or you're doubting in the sense of going on, why am I doing this? Does it really matter? Verse 57, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But thanks be to God. That's a great place to start. Thank God for right where you're at. Which giveth us the victory. Giveth us the victory. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We're not strong enough. He giveth us the victory. Who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that. Therefore, verse 58. My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. Stand firm. Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know... That your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's no question. It's all good. But if you, i gotta, I got to leave you with some encouraging stuff. This is in our future. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We'll read a few verses here. Let's go home encouraged because of our future salvation. The helmet of salvation, make sure you put it on, particularly in the heat of the battle. Verse 21, I'm sorry, chapter 21 verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. There's a new heaven and earth coming. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That verse... Verse 3, I can't, even, I can't even fully describe for you the significance of that. Verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more, say it together, death. No more death. Neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Turn over to chapter 22 of Revelation. More depictions of this future salvation and what it looks like. Verse 1, chapter 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. 
proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. Oh, you know that's the first time we see the tree of life since Genesis. God took it away. And now he's gone back. You know why? It was such an act of mercy, such an act of grace. What if the tree of life, what if Adam and Eve would have got a sampling of that one? They would have been forever in the state of sinfulness. Perpetual, eternal, lost foreverness. But you know what? God was so gracious, he kicked them out of the garden. Thankfully. And now in Revelation chapter 22, for the first time we see the tree of life back on. And you know what? You're going to eat of that every single day. I was going to say, I doesn't say that. But it's freely to be eaten of. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, which, I'm sorry, in the midst of the street of it on either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare twelve manners of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nation. So now I was going to say every day, you're probably going to eat of it every month at least. Verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Oh, I can't. I can't give you what that all means. I, I, I don't know. I've not lived outside of the curse. There will be no more curse, no more sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. And his name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And I'm going to add a few more evers. That is what we're talking about when we say to put on the helmet of salvation. There's a future that you can't even comprehend. And those of our loved ones that have passed away are right there, right now, feeling the Savior's love. Everything that the Savior is, they see Him for who He is. In fact, one more verse just popped in my mind. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Here's another verse you need to know. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Start in verse 1, because you think about what manner of love. Behold, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and we will end here. Promise, promise, promise. Behold, what manner of love, the, you guys don't believe me. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This is, this is how significant it is, that we should be called the sons of God. Don't, 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 don't miss that. Do you know that you are called the sons of capital G, God? Did you take that in? Whoa! Right? Gets better. Say, how? Therefore, because of that, the world knoweth us not. Of course they don't, because it knew him not. You, you, you have a disconnect between the world and you? Praise God! Verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, you, you really can't see everything that you can, or what you will be. But we know that... When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's in your future if you've trusted Christ. And no one can take that from you. And if that doesn't encourage you, I do not know what to do for you. But watch these four things this week. The four F's. Get them out of your life. Fatigue. Frustration, failure, and fear. They will move you into an area that you will be unproductive, unjoyful, and just plain miserable to be around. (laughs) Correct? Put on the whole armor of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your love and care. Thank you for the fact that you have written 
your word. You have given to us the power of God in written form so that we can see the significance of how majestic, awesome, omnipotent you really are. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that we have a future salvation. Yes, Father, we want to thank you for all three aspects of the fact when we, anyone that's here or within the sound of my voice, has trusted Christ as Savior, then the penalty of sin is gone. And if there's someone that has not trusted Christ as Savior, that's the beginning point. That's the prayer that God is waiting to hear from you. That prayer literally in some way, shape, or form from the very inner being of who you are, that inner place of your heart, the thinking functions of saying, I'm crying out to you, God. I can't solve my sin problem. I am a sinner. And your word says that the wages of sin is death. There's nothing that I can physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually do about it. It is outside of my means of helping or controlling it. But the word also tells me, Father, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he rose the third day according to the scriptures. And it also tells us that if we believe in him, if we trust him solely, that I will be saved. God, I'm reaching out to you. I'm asking you to be saved from my sin because I'm trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. And I mean it. If you've prayed that prayer, then you literally have been justified. You have been declared not guilty by God. It wasn't anything that you did in and of yourself. For by grace are you saved through faith. Jesus Christ did the work. And your trust in Him breaks the penalty of sin. And Father, the presence of sin ultimately as we go toward glorification is a thing that we look to to the future. Because of what Jesus accomplished. Because what, what he got done on Calvary, when he said it was finished, there was a whole lot of things that were done forever. But Father, we look to our future because it was accomplished and proven by the resurrection that you enacted in our dear Savior's life. It's with that sense of security and power that was demonstrated. Father, may we put on the helmet of salvation. It truly will ward off Satan's blows of discouragement and doubt that he's flailing around at vicious paces. May we be careful to put on the helmet of salvation. Father, I pray for each one of these dear folks here today and the life, the journey that they're engaged in, that each step of their life, Father, that they would put on the whole armor of God. Being mindful that they're in a war, that Satan is aggressive. He's a, like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. But Father, when we resist him with the whole armor of God, he will flee from us. An amazing amount of power that you have given to us with the armor of God. Father, there's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. But Father, allow us to trust what we know. When our life isn't easy, may it be simple. May we just trust you. May we obey what we know if you've, as your word is unfolded for us. Father, we reach out with love, with thankfulness for all of the encouragement 
and all of the many, many promises that you've given us to be able to stand upon, particularly in a world that has chaotically gone crazy. The world never knew you. May we adhere to you and your principles, your promises, looking to you every second of every day, aligning our wills with yours. Thank you, Father, that your will literally is for Jesus Christ to not lose any single one that has been given to him and to be risen up at the last day. Jesus' own words. Thank you. Praise your name. Ask and trust in your name through Jesus. Amen.